Good morning, Covenant College. It's my privilege to introduce our chapel speaker this morning who will bring us the next installment in our series uh, we've called Listening to Scripture. Uh, Dr. Jim Drexler wears many hats at the college. Uh, he is the chair of the education department. He's the co-director of the McClellan Scholars Program. He's the dean of the social sciences. He's the dean of the master of education program and he is poised like no one else could to take Covenant College global this proposal to establish a new campus in Indonesia. Uh, Jim is also a teaching elder in the PCA, so he's available to perform weddings, should you need one. <laughs> and he also, also serves on the session at New City Fellowship. Uh, when he isn't administrating college programs uh, or serving at his church or traveling the world on behalf of Covenant, Jim enjoys puttering around his backyard with pruning shears, a bag of mulch, his dog, Millie, and his grandson, Max. Dr. Drexler was born and raised in the state of Florida, and he is, unfortunately, a diehard Gator fan. Uh, he is a 1979 graduate of Covenant College. Uh, while a student here, he met, fell in love with, and soon married Covenant College royalty, the youngest daughter of Max and Jean Bell's Sarah. Uh, from the look of his back lot each week, most of you in this room eat lunch at Sarah and Jim's house every Sunday afternoon. Uh, Sarah and Jim have four children, uh, Mary Catherine, Nate, Julie, and John. And by May of this year, all four will have completed degrees at Covenant College. They're a wonderful family, and Covenant is deeply blessed to have them. Please join me in wel welcoming my friend, my colleague, and my next-door neighbor, Jim Drexler. Thank you. I'm going to move this forward because it feels like I'm way back. Okay, there. That's better. All right. Good morning. Thanks for coming to chapel. It's a privilege for me to be able to um, speak this morning. I recently read... Uh, the following words in a new book by Professor Jamie Smith. The book is entitled Imagining the Kingdom, and here is what he wrote. Our hearts traffic in stories. We are storytellers and story listeners. We are narrative animals whose very orientation to the world is fundamentally shaped by stories. We're less convinced by arguments than moved by stories. Our being in the world is more aesthetic than deductive, better captured by narrative than analysis. Indeed, the philosopher Alastair McIntyre says that stories are so fundamental to our identity that we don't know what to do without one. As McIntyre, and here Smith quotes him, says, I can't answer the question, what ought I to do, unless I have already answered a prior question, of which story am I a part? Back to Smith. It is a story that provides the moral map of our universe. It is narrative that trains our emotional perceptual apparatus to perceive the world as meaningful. Narrative is the scaffolding of our experience. Now, I'm not a philosopher, and some of you philosophy majors and theology majors and English majors might want to argue with Dr. Smith about that, but uh, I really liked that quote. I like that 
notion that our lives are captured, our attention and our passion are captured by the stories that we hear. And so as I thought about chapel this morning, I decided to recount a few stories from scripture which may be familiar to you, but stories that um, I think are really cool and have been very meaningful to me. Uh, The first one is found in 2 Kings chapter 6, and it occurs during the time of Elisha. Elisha is one of those interesting characters in the Old Testament narrative. We first meet him while he is plowing a field, and the prophet Elijah uh, comes to him and calls him to be his replacement. Elisha, you may know, responds to that call by slaughtering the oxen, with which he is plowing and burning the equipment to cook the meat for a feast. I guess Elisha was not one to look back once a decision was made. Later, once Elijah is taken up to heaven, Elisha busies himself with a number of interesting and really practical kinds of miracles. These are all in 2 Kings chapter 1 through 5. Elisha purifies some bad water. He calls bears out of the woods to bring judgment on a group of young men. He provides extra oil for a needy widow. He raises another boy from the dead. He made a bad pot of stew safe to eat. He cured um, the commander, Naaman, from leprosy and then brought leprosy as a judgment from God onto another man. And then he made a borrowed axe head that had flown off the axe handle into the water float so that it could be reclaimed. By the way, it's, it's noteworthy that when he uh, had his encounter with the commander Naaman, he was a general uh, military leader of the country of Syria, that this encounter happened not with a Jewish man, uh, but with a non-Jewish man. And so we have God's prophet interacting with and delivering a Gentile, which is sort of a foreshadowing of what is going to come in the New Testament. Well, that's a little bit about Elisha, but I particularly am drawn to the story that's in chapter 6, and we find that Elisha has also been involved in what we might call in our contemporary language some black ops for the king of Israel. Apparently, this was a period of time when Syria and Israel were at war, and every time the king of Syria made plans to attack Israel, God revealed those plans to the prophet Elisha, who then went in and told King Jehoram. Obviously, the king of Syria didn't like that because he was losing every encounter. In fact, verse 12 tells us that uh, one of the king of Syria's men came to him and said, Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak even in your bedroom. It's pretty effective intelligence work. But it makes the king of Assyria angry, and he makes plans then to go and capture Elisha. During the night... The Syrian troops come down to a city called Dothan. That's not in Alabama, but it's in the Middle East. And Dothan apparently was in a low area uh, of Israel surrounded by hills on every side. And the Syrian army encamped all around Dothan with the plan the next morning to capture Elisha. His servant uh, gets out uh, before he does, and he, he walks out and looks all around. And everywhere he sees, he sees the enemy army. The Syrians have come. We're trapped. Uh, We're in danger. And so he runs into Elisha with the bad news. And he says, Master, what are we going to do? And I think you already have up here, here's Elisha's response to his servant. 
Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha prays again that the enemy army would be blinded so that they could be led into the city. And then he directs the king to give them something to eat and something to drink and then sends them back to their homes. I guess we could say he sort of killed them with kindness. And this narrative ends up at the very end with this simple phrase, the Syrians did not come again on raids in the land of Israel. I guess not, after what they had experienced. There are a lot of great reasons I like this particular story in 2 Kings chapter 6, but one is this recognition that angelic beings have been given by God for our help, for our deliverance. In fact, they're referred to in Scripture at times as ministering spirits who are there to accomplish God's purposes for us. The scriptures, of course, teach us that we are to live by faith and not by sight. But every once in a while, the Lord allows us to sort of look behind the curtain as it was. And we learn about these angelic beings that are there on our behalf. Before moving on to a second story that I want to remind you of, let me simply read a few other passages now that we're thinking about angels. I don't know if you noticed, by the way, in the first hymn we sang, it referred to the angels who are there on our behalf. Just to remind you of what the scripture teaches in other places. First of all, Psalm 34, verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Do you fear the Lord this morning? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the angel of the Lord is here in our midst to deliver us. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Sometimes you remember close calls that have happened to you where If things had played out a little bit differently, physical harm or some other harm could have come to you. Perhaps these angels were acting as Psalm 91 describes. Passage from the New Testament to remind you of in Matthew chapter 18 verse 10. Jesus here in this familiar passage is talking about the little ones, the children. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven, these ministering angels on behalf of the children in the very presence of God. And then finally, over in the book of Hebrews, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Well, I suppose we could have a whole series of chapel chapel talks on angels and we don't have time to go into this but just simply to heighten our awareness we tend to live our lives and go day by day with what's right in front of us not thinking much at all about the spiritual realities that are all around us the scripture makes it clear that God has sent those angels on our behalf to accomplish his will to deliver us and to minister to us 
Well, the second story I want to remind you of uh, is over in the New Testament, Mark chapter 4 and 5, when Jesus delivers that crazed, demon-possessed man in the area called the Decapolis. I won't take time to read the whole passage. If you want to jot it down, it begins in chapter 4, verse 35, and continues on into chapter 5 and verse 20. But here's the picture. Earlier in chapter 4, Jesus has been busy telling stories. We call them parables, but stories that describe various aspects of the kingdom of God. In fact, in chapter 4 of Mark in verse 34, uh, we read these words, Jesus did not speak to them without a parable. He didn't communicate with people without telling a story, but privately it says um, to his own disciples, he explained everything to them. Well, after this period of storytelling, we read that Jesus and his disciples went to the other side, which is kind of an ominous phrase that Mark used there, uh, uses there because it meant they were crossing the Sea of Galilee. Going to the other side, to the Jewish mind of that day, would really probably raise the blood pressure for at least three reasons. First of all, the narrative tells us that they traveled at night. And in case you haven't realized it before, at night it is dark, and therefore it can be a scary place. Secondly, the sea is often referred to as a dangerous place. In fact, it's, it's uh, 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 mentioned in Scripture as, a, as an abyss or a place that you go down into, a place of danger. And third, they're going to the other side, which meant they were leaving the place uh, familiar to those Jewish followers of Jesus and going over to the area of the Decapolis, the predominantly Gentile area of pagan cities that most Jews would regard as an evil place. So you got dark, you got dangerous, you've got the devil. What could be worse? Well, what could be worse is that as they set out in their boats to cross that Sea of Galilee at night, a fierce storm blew up, a storm that in the uh, Greek indicates uh, a whirlwind, a tempest, maybe what we would think of as a, perhaps a tornado or a hurricane. The storm was so bad, in fact, water began filling into the boats and the boats were about to sink. So a bad situation was made even worse and the disciples rush in to wake up Jesus, who's been teaching, who's been telling stories all day and is resting in the stern of the ship. And here's what happened. Mark chapter 4, verses 38 and following. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I wonder how many times we accuse Jesus in that way of forgetting about our circumstances. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Two different kinds of fear in these verses. First of all, the disciples had a genuine fear. In other words, they were afraid. They were scared. They were frightened. They were intimidated by a storm blowing out, blowing up in the middle of the night. But then that fearfulness is replaced by another kind of fear, which we would refer to as as awe. 
as reverence, as respect, as worship. Who is this that can say to the wind, stop blowing, and it does? But there's more to this narrative. There's more to this story. Because when we get to the other side after the dark and the danger and the devil, they run into evil itself in the person of this demon-possessed man. You know the story well and his circumstances. But think for a minute about the awful condition of this man. He was possessed by so many demons that they called themselves a legion, which was a, a large group, thousands of Roman soldiers. People had tried to help him, they had tried to calm him, they had tried to chain him in the past, which no doubt had added to his humiliation and uh, loss of self-esteem. We're told in the narrative that he was cut, that he was bruised, that he was injured from the chains and the rocks. He lived by himself. I think that's something we often forget about. He was totally isolated. He lived by himself because no one else... Uh, would uh, live with him. They were fearful of him. And notice where he lived, in a graveyard. He lived among the tombs up in the caves. And the passage tells us that he cried out in anguish every day. So from a human perspective, here was someone who was utterly hopeless, utterly desperate, utterly pathetic, with no hope at all. Things are so bad for this man, you know in the story that Jesus actually talks to the demons first before he talks to this man. And again, a significant thing here is that when Jesus appears in the other side, who's the first to recognize that Jesus, the Son of God, is there? It's the demons. They clearly understand and know who Jesus is. And they plead with Jesus that he would not destroy them clearly indicating that they too are under the submission, under the authority of God. The story goes on, verses 11 through 13. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they, the, the demons within this man, begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Pretty dramatic moment there. The special effects, by the way, in that passage are really quite fascinating. Most of the verbs that are used in those sentences uh, are in the aorist tense, so it's sort of like a snapshot, a moment in time. It's like this. Jesus gave permission. The demons came out of the man. They entered into the pigs, and the pigs rushed down the cliff. But then, all of a sudden, Mark shifts to an imperfect verb tense, and the effect is like, all of a sudden, a slow-motion movement as you see pig after pig rushing over this embankment and drowning, landing in the sea and drowning there. By the way, landing in that same abyss that just a few minutes earlier the disciples were fearful of. You'd think at this point that the people who witnessed this would be overjoyed. I mean, they've spent however however much time trying to help this man and uh, help him overcome his problems. He's now been delivered from these demons. But Mark tells us in verses 15 and 16 that when they see the crazy man dressed and in his right mind, now those people in the Decapolis are afraid. There's a lot of fear going on in Mark chapter 4 and 5. 
This crazy man is now dressed and in his right mind, and that scares them. They didn't know what to think. And when they had learned about the pigs, we read in verse 16 that Jesus actually was asked to leave their area. Amazing. Here he is, the creator of the entire universe, the Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, had come to town, and their response is to ask Jesus to leave. The demons knew who he was, but these people did not yet know who Jesus was. Maybe they were mad at Jesus. Maybe they were farmers and they just lost 2,000 pigs and they were thinking of the economic impact that Jesus was having on them. I don't know. Maybe they had such a high regard for the pig itself. It was something of a sacred animal in parts of the Decapolis that they were offended by what they had just seen. Maybe they're just overwhelmed by the power and presence of Jesus. We don't know, but they asked him to leave. It was a sad moment when they asked Jesus Christ to leave. But there's one more scene in this story here in Mark chapter 5 that is remarkable. Jesus, who has controlled the uncontrollable sea and storm, who has done the unexpected in going to find the least likely person in the world to deliver, finishes the the account in this way if you look at verses 18 and 20. As he was getting back into the boat, and apparently that's all Jesus came to do. He came across the sea, endured that storm to deliver this one man. As he was getting back into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. It's probably what you would do. It's what I would do. I don't belong here anymore. I don't fit here any longer. You've just saved me. You've delivered me. I want to go with you, right, and follow Jesus. He asked to go with him. Jesus did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The one who had been delivered now goes back to announce deliverance to others. The one who has been saved is now the one sent to preach the salvation of Jesus. The one who had received mercy and grace and forgiveness is now gone to announce that to others. And apparently this fellow turned out to be a pretty effective missionary because about six, maybe nine months later, Jesus is back in this region again, the Decapolis. And Matthew records in his gospel in chapter 15 that 4,000 people came to see Jesus. They had heard about this man and they came with their sick and their lame and their demon-possessed to see this one that they had heard about. Then lastly, the third story I want to share with you isn't really specifically in the Bible, I guess, but I want to make the case uh, that it really is in the Bible. There are places in the Scripture from time to time um, where you and I are referred to, at least obliquely. Uh, One example is in Psalm 78, that passage where parents are commanded to Uh, tell their children the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And in verse 6, it says, um, it refers to the children yet to be born. So I guess if we project way out from the time Psalm 78 was written, we might be included in that reference. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays in verse 20 for those who will believe in me. So I'm making the case to you that we are at least hinted at through the scriptures as ones who would 
believe in Jesus. And so the third story I want to remind you of, or rather encourage you with, is the story that you have to tell what Jesus has done for you. You might remember in the Old Testament, after a significant event happened or a great military victory occurred, the people would often erect standing stones to commemorate the experience. You've probably seen things like this before. The idea was to build a monument so that when people passed by it for generations to come, they'd say, why are these here? What happened here? And then someone would say, well, let me tell you about what God did in this place. And so standing stones became uh, a tradition and a custom in the Old Testament times. When we uh, sing the hymn, Come Thou Fount, which I hope we'll do here in a minute, um, it refers to an Ebenezer, an Ebenezer that's been raised up to commemorate a deliverance from God. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, we read the following. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our living stone, our cornerstone, through what has happened in redemption, has made us into living stones so that we can literally be these Ebenezers. The point is, every one of you sitting here this morning has a story to tell. Some of you can tell pretty dramatic stories, stories of great deliverance from physical, emotional, spiritual sickness. And I would say to you what Jesus said to that man in Mark chapter 5, go and tell someone how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Others of you would testify that you have known about and believed in Jesus all your life. You can't remember a day when you didn't believe that Jesus was your Savior. What a story to tell. And I would say to you, as Jesus said that day, go and tell others what Jesus has done for you. Others were in situations maybe of financial ruin in the last few years. Your family has gone through all kinds of turmoil, but Jesus has rescued and delivered. And look at this. Here you are sitting at Covenant College. Go and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Others could testify about how the Lord has blessed you or your family or your roommate. I could go on and on, but the point here is you have a story to tell. And that's, if, if the Lord can use a crazed, demoniac man to bring 4,000 people to hear about the good news of Jesus, what can he do with all of us if we go and tell our story, the story of our salvation, our deliverance, the mercy that Jesus has had, and continues to have in our lives. Every bit as dramatic as that angelic host that Elisha and his servant were able to see that day, every bit as dramatic, as important as this demoniac being delivered that day in the Decapolis. I know Come Thou Fount is a very familiar hymn. We've sung it in chapel a number of times. It's really talking about praising God. It talks about a melodious sonnet, but I'm going to interpret that in the broadest sense of the words to say that it's talking about the story that we need to be not only singing in praise to God, 
but need to be telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ. So hymn number 457 in your red hymnal is how we're going to close chapel today. And think of these words as you sing them, thinking of the story and the narrative that God has given us through Jesus Christ and of the story and narrative that he wants you to tell a world that desperately needs to hear it. When we're finished singing this, we will use this as our closing prayer and then you'll be dismissed. So please stand and sing hymn number 457.